Well, it's so refreshing to sing those songs, isn't it? Just reminding ourselves of who, who God is and, and uh, what He's promised to be for us. And that's what I want to talk with you about this morning. Uh, if you remember, Billy mentioned uh, that next Sunday is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. I always try to find a passage that would uh, be appropriate to preach uh, on that Sunday. And it uh, just so happens in the province of God that uh, the very next text that we're going to be covering in the Gospel of John is perfect for IDOP Sunday. It's why the world hates us. And uh, so I want to save that for next Sunday. And uh, this morning, what I'd like to do is have you turn with me to the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk, that's in the clean spaces in your Bible, right? That place is where the pages stick together. You might have some trouble even finding that. So maybe... uh, you might uh, look on to somebody next to you, they can help you find it. But you, you know that um, on Wednesday nights, we've been doing a series on the minor prophets, and uh, this last Wednesday, we canceled for, uh, so we could all get ready for the fall family festival, and so uh, I'm a week behind, but not anymore, because I thought, hey, why not just preach Habakkuk this morning instead of last Wednesday night? And uh, hopefully this will be an encouragement to those of you that aren't able to be there on Wednesday nights. We've been having a great time going through these uh, more obscure books in the Bible and uh, been learning a ton. And uh, so hopefully this will give you a little taste, a little flavor uh, for the Minor Prophets and encourage you maybe to go online and listen to some of the messages uh, that I've been preaching on Wednesday night or even maybe start coming on Wednesday nights here uh, through November and December as we wrap wrap up this series. But... My question for you this morning is, how many of you have read the devotional classic by Hannah Hernard called uh, Hind's Feet on High Places? Anybody ever read that book, Hind's Feet on High Places? Why is it always the women, right, that raise their hands, right? Guys are like, what? I ain't reading that book. Do I have to wear a skirt when I read that book or what? But uh, great devotional classic. Uh, I would put up there maybe second only to Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. It's a creative allegory about the process that every Christian must go through to grow and mature in their relationship with Christ. And, and it focuses on a young girl named Much Afraid and all that she has to endure on her journey to the high places where she longs to live with her beloved shepherd. Um, Much Afraid lives in the Valley of Humiliation and she's tormented by all kinds of fears. And so one day she meets the shepherd And she pleads with him to take her to the high places with him. And so he promises to lead her there, but tells her that she's going to have to trust him. And so he provides her with two companions to guide her on her journey. Their names are Sorrow and Suffering. I'm like, hey, thanks a lot, Shepherd, for my two friends, Sorrow and Suffering, right? And so they set out on their journey. But instead of traveling up to the high places, the path forces her to go down through many difficult places and and she experiences many dangerous situations. She takes a detour through the desert. She walks along the shores shores of loneliness, climbs the great precipice of injury, passes through the forest of danger and tribulation. She wanders through the bewildering mist. She endures the valley of loss and then she's inundated by the floods. And the entire way... As you can imagine, she doubts and and questions and she wrestles with why the shepherd isn't leading her to the high places like he promised. And at one point, in the midst of a horrendous storm, she begins to lose perspective and, and she feels like giving up. 
And so she and her companions seek shelter in a small cave, and while she's sitting in that cave waiting for the storm to pass, she takes out a pouch filled with stones that she's been carrying with her that she's collected along the way, and she empties them into her lap. And she looks at this little heap of stones and asks herself, shall I throw them away? Are these not all worthless promises which the shepherd gave me along the way? And these little stones were to represent the promises of Scripture that He would never leave us or forsake us, that He would make our feet like hinds feet, that He would be a wise uh, potter, that He could be trusted. And so she's, she's wondering, she's wrestling uh, in that cave, and she finally concludes, she says, though everything in the world should tell me they are worthless, I cannot part with them. And so she puts them back in her bag and she clutches them to her chest and she continues to persevere through all of these trials and tribulations and eventually she reaches the high places. And when she gets there, she's given a new name, Grace and Glory, and Sorrow and Suffering, who by this time have become her best friends, uh, are given the names Joy and Peace. And when she meets the shepherd, he asks her to give him the bag of memorial stones that she had collected along the way. I bet she's glad she didn't throw that away, right? Um, And so she gives it to him, and he tells her to put out her hand. And so she puts out her hand, and to her amazement, what falls into her hands are not these little stones, but a heap of sparkling jewels. And then the shepherd takes each of these stones, and he arranges them in a crown, and he places it on her head. And at that moment, she remembered that experience in the cave when she had almost lost perspective and was tempted to to throw away the promises of the shepherd as, as just worthless stones. And if she had failed to trust him, she would have never reached the the glory of the high places, nor would she have such a beautiful crown to wear. Now, if you know anything about the book of Habakkuk, you know that that story, Hind's Feet on High Places, is taken from the last verse of this book. Look at Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 19. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 19, the Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like... Hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. This was the prophet Habakkuk's triumphant testimony of how faith overcame fear. And that even though God's ways are often hard to understand, he can and must be trusted. God had given Habakkuk the terrifying prophecy that Judah was going to be invaded and destroyed by their enemies, the Babylonians. Look at verse 16 of chapter 3. I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones and in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. In other words, Habakkuk was much afraid. This was a very frightening situation. Not only frightening, but it was a very confusing situation. And what's unique about the book of Habakkuk is that it doesn't focus on on his proclamation to Judah regarding God's coming judgment on them because of their sinful rebellion, but it focuses rather on his conversation with God regarding why he would use a nation more sinful than them to judge them. He couldn't figure that out. And, And Habakkuk was extremely open and honest about the questions and the struggles that he was having with the mysterious ways of God. That's why I love this book, and, and, and I think it just helps us learn to be honest and open, because come on, let's, let's be honest, okay? Oftentimes, it is hard to figure out what in the world God is up to. 
There are times in all of our lives when we find ourselves in, in circumstances that are beyond our ability to understand. We, we wonder and even wrestle with why God would allow such and such to happen to us or to someone we love. And while we may never actually say, God, I have a bone to pick with you, our, our, our thoughts and our feelings and our attitudes express that we have a problem with what God is doing. But like Habakkuk, hopefully those times that we're baffled by God and confused by His dealings with us or His dealings in the world, um, these serve as pathways for us to grow and mature in our faith and confidence in God. We, we go higher, right, and we grow closer to God, hinds feet on high places. I think the main message of the book of Habakkuk is simply Trust God. Trust God. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. And this next phrase should sound very familiar to you. But the righteous will live by his faith. The righteous will live by his faith. You say, well, why does that sound familiar? Well, because... That verse is quoted, or that phrase, I should say, is quoted three times in the New Testament and is not only the core of Christianity, but is also the catalyst of the Protestant Reformation that that radically but rightly divided the church of Jesus Christ to this day. I just kind of had to throw that in because today is Reformation Sunday, right? And uh, we're not really emphasizing that today, but it's interesting in in the province of God that we are here uh, looking at a verse, right? that was responsible for the Protestant Reformation. And I think this is just an example that minor, when it comes to minor prophets, doesn't mean not as important, but simply shorter, smaller, right, than the other prophetic books. Um, The minor prophets, I think, have kind of been... um, gotten the, the short end of the stick. They're kind of maybe the redheaded stepchild of the, of the, of the Bible, right? They, they, they just kind of have been neglected, probably misunderstood uh, historically. They've not been a popular subject of biblical exposition. I mean, who wants to hear these doom and gloom messages from ancient men to ancient nations regarding ancient events that have no relevance to us who are living in the 21st century? I mean, who in the world is Habakkuk and why should I care? Seriously, I mean, you should be asking yourself that question. Habakkuk, who's that, and so what? What we need to realize is that even though the Minor Prophets were written close to 3,000 years ago, the powerful truths in this obscure section of the Bible are as relevant and as applicable and as potentially life-changing today as they were back then. Now, just to give you a quick overview for those of you that haven't been here on Wednesday nights, uh, the, the minor prophets are the written records of 12 prophets that God handpicked to both confront and to console the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Remember that there was a civil war in Israel and 10 tribes went north and two tribes stayed south, Israel and Judah. And so these prophets confronted and consoled both the northern and southern kingdom, along with the surrounding Gentile nations. Assyria is mentioned often. Edom is mentioned a number of times. And, and they ministered, the, the minor prophets ministered during the, the empires of Assyria, Babylon, and Medo-Persia, which spanned four centuries between 800 to 400 B.C. 
And God used these chosen prophets to both foretell and to foretell. Okay, that was the role of a prophet, not only to predict the future, but also to proclaim the truth. And their main job was to confront sin and warn people if they didn't repent and return to the Lord that God would judge them. And they would predict what would happen to that nation or that city if they didn't heed God's warning. Now, I think it's important that we understand this, that when you think about a prophet, right, Typically, you, you get this picture of an angry prophet, right? The guy standing on the soapbox in the middle of the quad at, you, at your university, screaming and yelling or out of the street corner with a big sign that says repent, and the guy's obnoxious, and all, is he doing, all he's doing is, is making things worse. Why? Because he's just confronting, 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 talking about wrath, talking about judgment, talking about sin. But we need to understand the minor prophets didn't just go around confronting people, but they also consoled people, they comforted people by reminding them of God's promises to forgive them and to restore them and to bless them in the future, which ultimately occurred through the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And over half of the minor prophets contained direct prophecies that were fulfilled by Jesus Christ at his first coming and will be fulfilled at his second coming. And again, why the, the, the 12 these 12 prophetic books are referred to as minor, are not because their message is less important than the five major prophets. We talk about major prophets being, what, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Did I get that in the right order? Yeah. So those are the five major prophets. Well, it's simply because they're shorter in length. In fact, um, before the time of Christ, to ensure that none of these books slipped through the cracks because they were so tiny... Um, they were grouped together in the Hebrew Bible to make one long scroll that they simply called the Twelve. The Twelve. If you were to ask a devout Jew today, tell me about the Twelve, they wouldn't think about the Twelve Disciples, they would think about the Twelve Minor Prophets. And that's why this graphic seems to fit, fit well. Twelve, right? It's the Twelve Major Points of the Minor Prophets. Now, let me tell you how not to think about the Minor Prophets. Okay, don't think about it in terms of major league and minor league, right? We just got done with the world, watching the World Series. We know there's major leagues and there's the minor leagues. And so, you know what? You know, Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, man, they were the major league players. Whereas eh, Habakkuk and Amos and Nahum and Obadiah, uh, these were, they were still in the, you know, farm league, okay? They were, they were in the minor leagues. No, not at all. I think the better way to look at the minor prophets is, is the difference between major and minor keys on a piano. They're both important, right? They, they maybe play a, a different role, more of a background role, but man, if you didn't have those minor keys, right, you wouldn't be able to make the music you're able to make. And so they're equally important, the both major and minor prophets. And we're going to see here that even though... Uh, they are small, they pack a powerful practical punch. And so let's look at the book of Habakkuk this morning and, and just do really a kind of a quick overview uh, of this book. Notice verse 1, it says, The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw, he mentions himself again in chapter 3, verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. And so like a number of the other minor prophets, this is all we have to go on. Uh, we don't know anything about Habakkuk other than his name, which, by the way, I think is very providential in that his name means one who embraces or clings. 
one who embraces or clings, and, and it really conveys the idea of a wrestler holding on to his opponent. So the, the, so the name Habakkuk is really rich in meaning, and, and I think what's so significant about that is that he lived out his name, in that he, he wrestled with God in the midst of a very difficult, confusing situation, and by the end of his prophecy, as we'll see, he, he clung to God by faith, and he embraced God's will regarding the future of Judah. There's also a, a phrase at the end, you may have noticed at the beginning, it says, for the choir director on my stringed instruments, that may be a suggestion that Habakkuk was a priest connected to the temple worship in Jerusalem. Maybe he was a priest that was called to be a prophet. Not sure of that, but it's interesting that little phrase is the only time it's mentioned in the Minor Prophets. Um, we, we also know that, that Habakkuk wrote this sometime between 609 and 605 B.C., Josiah, the king of Judah, uh, died in 609, and even though God used him to make all these sweeping reforms, uh, Judah quickly fell back into its sinful, rebellious ways during the godless reign of Jehoiakim, which happened after 609. And so what, uh, what we see in this, uh, this description of Judah would not fit Josiah's reign, but it would fit better in Je- Jehoiakim's reign. Also, as prophesied by Nahum, which we looked at just a couple weeks ago, Nineveh, which was the capital city of Assyria, was conquered by the Babylonians in 612. And then Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, first invaded Judah in 605 BC. That's when he took Daniel, right, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as exiles, brought them back to Babylon. So that's where we get the date, somewhere between 609, 605 BC, in preparation for the invasion of the Babylonians. Let me just give you a simple summary uh, of the book, just in case I lose you somewhere along the way. Uh, This is the spoiler warning, okay? So let me tell you how this thing uh, really kind of goes. Habakkuk observed the violence and injustice of Judah, and he wondered why God was not dealing with the wickedness of the nation. He was praying for revival. He was praying for God to do a work, and he was not getting any answer. And so God told him that he was going to do something, but he was going to use the Babylonians as his rod of judgment upon Judah, which really perplexed Habakkuk. And he asked God how he could judge his own people with a nation that was even more wicked than they were. And so God patiently instructed Habakkuk along the way until at last he was able to exult and rejoice in God even though his beloved nation would be destroyed and even though he didn't completely understand the ways of God. I put a title on the notes in the back, Worshiping While Wrestling. Worshiping While Wrestling. Anybody ever wrestled with God over some issue in their life? Liars. Okay? Thank you. We got two honest people over here, okay? Yeah, I think we're all tempted to do that. There are situations that just make absolutely no sense, and we're, we're wrestling in our hearts. Lord, what in the world are you doing? But the theme or the message of the book of Habakkuk is, guess what? Even while we wrestle with God, trying to figure out His mysterious ways, we can worship Him. We can worship Him. We can be comforted in the midst of our confusion. And so the book really breaks down nicely into two sections. You've got chapters one and two, uh, where 
uh, you see Habakkuk's problem with God. Habakkuk's problem with God, chapters 1 and 2. And then chapter 3 is, is Habakkuk's prayer to God. His prayer to God. So in chapters 1 and 2, we see the dialogue back and forth uh, Habakkuk's two questions to God and God's two answers in response. And then in chapter 3, there's a prayer uh, of worship to God. Now, for the sake of our time this morning, I'm just going to divide this up according to the chapters. And I'm going to call chapter 1, wrestling. Chapter 2, watching and waiting. And chapter 3, worshiping. Okay, And that's kind of the process that God took um, Habakkuk through. And hopefully, he'll take you through in your heart this morning as we look at, at what we can learn here. Chapter 1, wrestling. Look at verse 2. How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? God, how long am I going to keep praying about this thing and, and, and you, don't, you don't answer? It seemed like the heavens were brass, as they say, and, 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 and he couldn't figure out why God was not answering his prayers. I cry to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. So here's Habakkuk voicing his first complaint to God. This is his first bone that he had to pick with God, if you will. That after the death of Josiah, justice essentially disappeared in Judah and violence and lawlessness, lawlessness became pervasive throughout the land and, and Habakkuk was deeply concerned that God's holiness was being violated and he wondered why God has not intervened and, and, and judged this flagrant sin of his people. I mean, how could he allow, allow such wickedness to go unchecked and unpunished? And notice how God responds in verse 5, look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I'm doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. I think the first thing I would say is this, be careful what you pray for, because God may answer in ways that you don't expect, right? But God responded here by telling Habakkuk, hey, listen, I'm aware, I'm, I'm fully aware of the sinful situation in Judah, and, and I am going to deal with my people in my time and in my way. But just so you know, what I'm planning, you would not believe, even if I tell you. You're going to have a hard time believing this, how I plan to punish my people. Uh, and, and so he went on to tell them that he was going to use the nation of Babylon to discipline Judah, and he describes how fearsome and ferocious the Babylonians were. Notice what he says here uh, in, in, verse, um, in verse 6. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, that fierce and impetuous people whose march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They're dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings and rulers are allowed laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. Then they will sweep through like the winds and pass on, but they will be, but they will be held guilty, they whose strength is their God. And so 
Habakkuk doesn't even have to tell God how wicked the Babylonians are. He's fully aware of how evil they are. And here he's just talking about how ferocious, how fearsome they are, uh, how really they had no acknowledgement of God whatsoever. They were their own gods. And they were just running over the earth at the time, just taking everything captive and destroying everything in their path. And they were merciless. And he says, guess what? Judah is, is going to be their next target. They're going to lay siege to it, and they're going to invade, and they're going to bring the people into exile, and then they're going to ultimately destroy the entire city of Jerusalem, tear down the temple, the walls, everything. Well, God's response to Habakkuk's first question created an even greater question in Habakkuk's mind. And notice how he voices his second complaint. If he had a bone to pick, him, bone to pick with God at first, right? Now he really has a bone to pick with him. Verse 12, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? God, I, I, wait a minute. You, aren't you the everlasting God, the, the holy God? You're my God. I know you. We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? Notice the the fishing analogy. All you fishermen out there, you'll appreciate this. The Chaldeans or the Babylonians bring all of them up with a hook, draw them away with their net, and gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net because through these things their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? God, are you serious? I mean, do you know the reputation of these Babylonians? How arrogant they are and how they, they, they never give you honor and glory for anything. They're idolatrous. And so the fact that God was sending the Babylonians to punish Judah baffled him, baffled Habakkuk even more, again, because it seemed so inconsistent with his character and his promises. And he's just really reiterating some of the the, uh, character traits or the attributes of God here. His eternality, his holiness, his righteousness, his his stability, his immutability, the fact that he doesn't change. And his question of, of why didn't God judge his people was eclipsed by the question of why God would use the Babylonians to judge his people. Who, while sinful and deserving of punishment were clearly far less wicked than the Babylonians. I mean, just to kind of put this in perspective, maybe, imagine if a group of people, a group of Christians, who are concerned for the spiritual state of the United States, and uh, they're praying for revival, right? They know that God is going to have to judge the nation at some point, but they're praying for revival, and praying that God would deal with the sin of the nation. And then God comes back and says, oh, you know what, I'm aware, and and just so you know, I'm going to use ISIS, Islamic terrorists, to judge the United States of America. 
We'd be like, what? God, are you serious, God? I mean, come on, we're a Christian nation. We, we believe in the one true God, and you're going to use these, these false, this false religion to bring down America? That doesn't make any sense, God. That doesn't seem to fit your character. Uh, doesn't, isn't that going to send the wrong message to the Muslim world? That they're right and we're wrong? I think that was the point. Is God, this is going to send a wrong message to the Babylonians that somehow they're right and we're wrong. We're your people. And so in the midst of this confusion, right, we need to do what Habakkuk did and, and ultimately say, you know what? God, your ways are higher than my ways and your thoughts are greater than my thoughts. Isaiah chapter 55 8 and 9. And so here he was wrestling, we're watching him here wrestling with God and what he was doing and what he was up to and why he was doing what he was doing. Didn't make any sense to him. Seemed so inconsistent. And then we come to chapter 2 where he begins to watch and wait. He goes from wrestling to watching and waiting. Notice verse 1, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I'm reproved. In other words, he, he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of uh, stand here as a, as a sentinel stationing myself in order to watch and wait for God to answer. And I don't know if he had his arms crossed and say, okay, God, how are you going to answer that question? As if he had God over the barrel, right? Saying, oh, that's going to be a tough question for him to answer. And so he's waiting. But notice it says, I think, and how I may reply when I'm reproved. He, he knew he was, he was uh, taking a chance here, right? Saying the things he was saying to God. He was being open and honest with God. Saying, God, I don't get this. I don't like this. I got a problem. You got a bone to big with you. And he knew he probably had a rebuke coming. <laughs> it's sort of like Job, right? Job questioned the Lord and, and, and was asking him why this and why that. And all of a sudden, God shows up in the whirlwind and says, Hey, Job, where were you when I did this and 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 this? And he's like, put a hand over my mouth. I should have never said anything, God. You're right. I'm wrong. And so he's waiting for God to answer him. And notice God tells him here to write down the vision that he was about to give him. Verse 2, Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets, that the one who reads it may run, for the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. So see the watching in verse 1, the waiting here in verse 3, for it will certainly come, it will not delay. In other words, you can count on this, it's going down. You say, what was the vision? Well, the vision in verses 4 through 20 is the destruction of Babylon. Not the destruction of Judah, but the destruction of Babylon. And so God answered Habakkuk by reassuring him that he was not only aware of Judah's sins, but he was also aware of the sin of the Babylonians and that he was planning not just to judge Judah, but also to judge the Babylonians because of their pride and ambition and greed and cruelty and debauchery and idolatry. And that's what he describes here uh, in, in the, the rest of chapter 2. And, and he basically spells, God spelled out the fate of the Babylonians in a series of woes. And if you're a prophet, right, or you had a prophet in town, you never wanted them to direct a woe towards you. Because that was like, watch out, because you're in big trouble. Whoa. 
Notice he says in verse 4, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. We'll come back to that. Furthermore, wine betrays the the haughty man so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol. He's like death, never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all peoples. Notice uh, verse 6, will not all these take up a taunt song against them, even mockery and insinuations against them, and say, woe to him who increases what is not his for how long and makes himself rich with loans. This is a description of the, of the Babylonians. Interesting, don't miss the connection here to America. <laughs> will not your creditors rise up suddenly and those who collect from you awaken? Indeed, you will become plunder for them. This is just purely my opinion. Stand way over here. I don't think it's in the Bible. If you, if you ever wonder who's going to take down America, this is my opinion. Who owns America? China. Right? With all of our finances, you know, that's who we lend from, it seems like, the majority of what we do to make ourselves rich and keep ourselves going. All they have to do is call the note and we're toast, Right? Because you have looted many nations, all the remainder of the peoples will loot you because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town and all its inhabitants. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to put his nest on high, to be delivered from the hand of calamity. You have devised a shameful thing for your house by cutting off many people, so you are sinning against yourself. Surely the stone will cry out from the wall and the rafter will answer it from the framework. Woe, here's another woe. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. This is, how the, this is how the Babylonians went about their, their business. Verse 15, Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk so as to look on their nakedness. You'll be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Verse 18, What profit is the idol when its maker has carved it or an image, a teacher of falsehood, for its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols? Are you serious? You guys are, are worshiping a piece of wood? Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake, to a mute stone arise, and that is your teacher. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver. There is no breath at all inside it, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. You've got to love that last verse, verse 20, right? In the midst of all these woes, but the Lord is in his holy temple that all the earth be silent before him. In other words, God's, God's got this. <laughs> He's got this. He's in control. He's sovereignly sitting on his throne. By the way, I didn't read verse 14. Go back to verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I love that. In the midst of this doom and gloom and, and, and difficult prophecy, the Spirit of God through Habakkuk inserts this ray of hope, and you can't help but read verse 14 without thinking of the second coming of Jesus Christ when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I think this is a reference to the book of Revelation and the millennial reign of Christ. Again, these, these, these Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled in the coming of Christ, his first coming, his second coming, we're, we're here to give hope in the midst of the, the pain and the sorrow and the confusion. And ultimately, we know that the, the Babylonians were completely obliterated by the Medes and the Persians in 539 BC, which is just a little less than 50 years after uh, this prophecy. And, and I think what... what God was saying here to Habakkuk in chapter 2 was what goes around comes around. 
In other words, I'm going to do to the Babylonians, I'm going to use the Medes and Persians to do to the Babylonians what the Babylonians are going to do to you and what they've been doing to everybody else. They're going to reap what they sow, right? And so he goes from wrestling to watching and waiting. And then I love chapter 3 because it's all about worshiping. It's all about worshiping. And I think chapter 3 is, is one of the greatest prayers in the Old Testament. It's a, it's a beautiful, powerful declaration of faith in who God is and what God does. Notice the first verse, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shiginoth. So what we see here, verses 2 all the way through 19, is a prayer. And notice how he begins. He says this, Lord, I have heard the report about you and I fear. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. What a great phrase. In wrath, remember mercy. If you're praying for the United States right now, that would be the prayer to pray, right? In wrath, Remember mercy. God, be merciful to us in the midst of the you pouring out your wrath in our country, giving us over, right, to our sinfulness. Be merciful. This is what you should pray for your kid, right, that's not walking with the Lord and who's maybe gone off and, and, and you're praying, Lord, do whatever it takes to get their attention and bring them back. But Lord, in your judgment, right, be merciful. Be merciful. In wrath, remember mercy. I like how one commentator said this. He said, at first, Habakkuk had been afraid that God was doing too little. Hey, God, why aren't you doing anything with the nation of Judah? But he became concerned that perhaps God was doing too much. Hey, whoa, time out. Babylon, judging? I don't know if I like that. So the prophet pleads with the Lord that as he punished Judah, he would show mercy and once more revive his work among his people. Great example for us. And then notice he goes on here in this prayer to praise God for the many ways that he has shown his power and faithfulness on behalf of his people in, in, in all sorts of ways and at all sorts of times in the past. God comes from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. He is rays flashing from his hand and there is the hiding of his power. Before him goes pestilence and plague comes after him. He stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushan under distressed. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. Did the Lord rage against the rivers or was your anger against the rivers or was your wrath against the sea? that you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation. Your bow was made bare. The rods of chastisement were sworn. So again, he's just exalting God for how he's put on display his power in, in, in dealing with man's sin. And he says, you cleaved the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and quaked. The downpour of water swept by the deep, uttered forth, the deep uttered forth its voice. It lifted high its hands. Sun and moon stood in their places. They went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear and indignation. You marched through the earth in anger. You trampled the nations. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of the evil to lay open from, to lay him open from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own spears the head of his throngs. They stormed in to scatter us. Their exaltation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. You trampled on the sea with your horses on the surge of many waters. Obviously, some, some imagery here um, regarding how God delivered the Israelites from 
Egypt, right, and the Red Sea crashing on to the, to the, to the uh, Egyptian soldiers and, and, and how God worked in, in miraculous ways through Joshua and uh, through the wilderness wandering, through entering the, the promised land. So he's just, again, he's just, um, he, he's just meditating on God's goodness and faithfulness in the past. And as he did that, he became more confident and peaceful about the future. Listen, has God ever failed you yet? Has he? Has he ever failed you yet? Then why would you be concerned now? No matter what you're facing, right? I think this is helpful for us to remember that we should be thinking back about all the ways God has proven himself to be faithful to us in the past, right? And it gives us hope and confidence for the future. And then we come to verse 16. We already read this. This is kind of how he felt at the time. I heard in my inward parts trembled. I was scared. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to rise who will invade us. In other words, here I am. I got, I got no other choice but just to wait for, for the hammer to fall, right, on Judah and for the Babylonians to come and in, invade us. But notice verses 17 and 18, how Habakkuk expresses faith and confidence in God. Basically, God, I'm scared, and God, I'm confused about the devastation that lies ahead of us. But you know what? I'm going to trust you anyway. I'm going to trust you anyway. I think this is one of the greatest expressions of faith found in the entire Bible. Notice he says in verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, which by the way, in an agricultural society, it doesn't get any worse than that. that that's, a, that's as bad as it could get. Verse 18, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. I think that statement there, verses 17 and 18, would, would be equivalent to Job's classic declaration, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. What? Blessed be the name of the Lord. In other words, God is worthy to be worshipped all the time, no matter what's going on in your life. Last week, Hannah was having a hard time. Our daughter Hannah was having a hard time with the announcement about Blake leaving, and, and uh, she came to my office in between services and said, Dad, man, it's just really hard to sing this morning. She was up here leading worship, and she said, man, it's really hard to sing this morning, Dad. And I said, I know, sweetie, that's, that's, that's got to be rough. And I said, but let me read you something that I wrote in my Bible years ago, and it was here in Habakkuk chapter 3. Years ago, I had written uh, this note under verse 18, no matter what is happening in your life, God is always worthy to be worshipped. I said, so sweetie, get out there and worship, right, the Lord, because he's worthy to be worshipped. Hopefully you can see the application here. Some of you may be still trying to get past the fig tree and the olive branches and the flocks and the cattle and the stalls. You're like, hey, I'm not a rancher. I don't have any of that stuff, right? Um, I don't have any trees in my backyard. How, how does this relate to me? Well, let's just do this. How about this? 
why don't you just fill in the disturbing things in your life right now into verse 17? What is disturbing you right now? What, is, what, is, what are you wrestling with God about? What are you perplexed by? What are you struggling with? Though the fig tree should not blossom, though the yield of the olive should fail. How about this? Though I've lost my job. Though my kid is not walking with the Lord right now. Though my chronic pain is getting worse, not better, and there seems to be no explanation. Though I've just been diagnosed with cancer. Though we're losing our beloved music and media pastor. Right? Put it, put it in, whatever it is, put it in there. Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. J. Sidlow Baxter wrote a great book called Explore the Book. And this is what he said. Literally what Habakkuk was saying is, I will jump for joy in the Lord. I will spin around for delight in God. And then he said this, here is the hilarity of faith. Joy at its best with circumstances at their worst. Joy at its best when circumstances are at their worst. What a victory. May it be ours. But then notice verse 19. Because some of you might be sitting here going, hey, Ken, that sounds really nice, but dude, are you crazy? Are you kidding me? How can I do that? How how can I exult and worship and rejoice in God in the midst of what I'm going through? Are you serious? That's impossible. You're right. It is impossible if it's up to you and your strength. But notice what he says here. The Lord God is my strength. The Lord God is my strength. And he has made my feet like hinds feet, and he makes me walk on my high places. In other words, Habakkuk's strength was not his strength, it was the Lord, right? His faith was not even his, it was more trusting in the faithfulness of God. I love that definition that Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, he said, faith is simply trusting in the faithfulness of God. That's faith, trusting in the faithfulness of God. And notice it says, I made my feet like Heinz feet, and I'm walking on my high places. I'm going to beat this thing. I can do this. No, it wasn't anything about him. It was like, God has made my feet like Heinz feet, and God, the Lord God, makes me walk on my high places. Our lives as Christians are, are not based so much on our faithfulness, but on God's faithfulness. We, we talk about the perseverance of the saints, Right? Ultimately, that's the preservation of the saints, that God is the one who's preserving us. And so hopefully you see the the hope even in verse 19 that, that while this all seems impossible, humanly impossible, it is humanly impossible. But with the help of the Lord, the strength of the Lord, we, we can respond to life's trials and tribulations like Habakkuk did with worship and praise. Chuck Swindoll has written a very helpful little study guide on the book of Habakkuk, and I've enjoyed working through it in, in preparation for the messages on Wednesday. And at this point, he, I think, makes a very insightful comment. He said, quote, if you were to ask the average churchgoer which biblical writers were most important to Christianity, he says it's doubtful that Habakkuk's name would ever come up. 
Oh, yeah, Habakkuk. Like, who's Habakkuk? He says, yet this obscure prophet's words were used to form the foundation of our faith. I don't want to overstate this, but Christianity is based on the book of Habakkuk. Specifically, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. But the righteous will live by his faith. Which, as I already mentioned, right, was repeated three times in the New Testament. Twice by the Apostle Paul, who quoted um, Habakkuk 2.4 and Galatians 3.11, Romans 1.17, um, to prove as evidence of the cardinal doctrine that a person is justified by faith alone apart from works. Rather than making ourselves right with God by relying on our own strength and our own abilities, we must simply and solely trust in what God has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Interesting, this phrase, back in Habakkuk 2.4, is in the midst of the prophecy of judgment and wrath. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right with him, but the righteous will live by his faith. In other words, there are some who will escape. There's a remnant who will escape the wrath of God, the punishment of God. And so in order to escape God's wrath against our sin, we must repent of our prideful efforts to save ourselves and place our faith alone in the fact that Jesus has already earned our salvation for us. I already read for you Galatians 3.11 before communion. Romans chapter 1, verse 17. This is probably where you know this reference the most from. Romans 1.17, as Paul is introducing the gospel and beginning to launch into this, this explanation of the gospel... He says this in Romans 1.17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, and he quotes Habakkuk 2.4, But the righteous man shall live by faith. The righteous man shall live by faith. And if you know anything about that verse, Romans 1.17, that was the verse that sparked the Protestant Reformation back in the 1500s. Because there was a very confused, very frightened monk named Martin Luther who was doing everything he could possibly think of to get, get right with God and to be declared righteous before the Lord. And so what was he doing? He was doing everything the Catholic Church in those days was telling him to do. And he was, he, he was beating himself and he was flogging himself and he was keeping all these rules and regulations. He was going to confess, confession multiple times a day for hours to the point that he was frustrating the priests and the priests would say... Martin Luther, go away and do something worth confessing and come back and confess it. I mean, you knew he, <laughs> he was irritating the priest at that point, but he was doing all sorts of things, climbing up the stairs, looking at all the relics, bowing down, kissing all these things, thinking that this was what was going to help him to be, to be saved. And, and, and even though he was so confused, and uh, they, they still asked him to teach a theology class. And so he started to teach the book of Romans to his students, and he got to Romans chapter 1, verse 17, and he read, but the righteous man shall live by faith, and it's like the light switch went on. And he says that verse was the gateway to heaven for him, because he realized that he had been trying all these years to, to earn favor with God by his own good works, and he realized it's not by works, it's by faith alone. And the rest is History. Habakkuk 2.4, in, in many ways, is, is not just the key to understanding the Christian faith. It's the key to understanding the history of the Christian church. So much for a minor prophet, right? 
And I think furthermore, it is also the key to understanding the Christian life. Because faith is not just a a one-time act that saves us, but it's a way of life for the Christian. We are told to walk by faith and not by sight. And the third place where Habakkuk 2.4 is quoted in the New Testament is in, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38 says, My righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith in the preserving of the soul. The writer he was, was addressing Jewish believers who had, who had come to faith in Christ and were being tempted because of persecution to go back to their, to their old ways of Judaism. And he's saying, hey, hey, don't do that. Don't shrink back. Have faith. And then he defines faith in chapter 11, verse 1. Excuse me. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then he goes on to describe all these people in the Old Testament who lived by faith, right? You've got Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and the list goes on and on in this hall of faith, Hebrews chapter 11. The point is this, that true believers persevere and remain faithful amidst the trials and the tribulations of life. John Blanchard, who wrote that little book, Ultimate Questions, that we give to all of our first-time visitors, he's also written this great book on the Minor Prophets, Major Points from the Minor Prophets. I didn't steal the title from him. Just kidding, I did. I was joking. I stole the title from him. Just admitting, confessing, it's good for the soul, right? Totally ripped off the title. But listen to what he said. This is so good, what, what he said. He said, listen, quote, As Christians face up to the problems, pressures, and pains of life, there is a sense in which we live in blissful blindness. Walking by faith, not by sight. Blissful blindness. We have no idea how the swirling circumstances of life fit into God's perfect plan for us, nor do we need to know. We may not know what the future holds, but we do know who holds the future. And this should satisfy us and stabilize us. He says, J.I. Packard is spot on when he says, the truth is that God in his wisdom to make and keep us humble and to teach us to walk by faith has hidden from us almost everything that we would like to know about the providential purposes which he is working out in the church and in the world. This applies directly to Christians facing severe trials. The solution that naturally appeals to us is their immediate removal. God, I wouldn't mind if you just took this away right now. He says, when we're sick, we want instant healing. When we're, we're in financial difficulties, we want an instant injection of cash. When we have a problem, we want a prompt and complete answer. Yet faith has another option. And then he quotes Johnny Erickson Tata, that beautiful woman who God has used for years, right, as a quadriplegic who, in a diving, uh, she dove into the Chesapeake Bay as a teenager and, 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 and hit the ground, uh, the bottom, and, and, and it severed her spine and she's been a quadriplegic ever since and somebody that really wrestled and questioned God if you ever read her testimony she said this when we learn to lean back on God's sovereignty fixing and settling our thoughts on that unshakable unmovable reality we can experience great inner peace our troubles may not change our pain may not diminish 
Our loss may not be restored. Our problems may not fade away with the new dawn. But the power of those things to harm us is broken as we rest in the fact that God is in control. God is in control. Let me give you a homework assignment. Hopefully you like to listen to music. God uses music to stimulate me, to encourage me, to comfort me, to challenge me. Two of my favorite songs. One is God Moves in a Mysterious Way, an old hymn by William Cowper, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, and then a newer song called While I'm Waiting by John Waller. Find those in a hymn book, YouTube, however you got to find them. Get them on your iPod, get them on whatever you listen to, get them on a CD to put in your car on the way to work, back and forth. Listen to those two songs, and I'm telling you, the book of Habakkuk will come to life for you. Because they really are an application, a, a, a response, right, to, to the message of the book of Back. Beloved, God is worthy to be trusted and he's worthy to be worshipped. Let's pray. Father, thank you for regularly pushing us out of our comfort zone. Just to remind us that we cannot and will not find comfort in anyone or anything but you. Thank you for putting us in situations where we're forced to trust you, trust everything we know to be true about you, even when things seem inconsistent with who you said you you are in your word. Thank you that even when we can't understand what you're up to in our lives, you never fail us, you never change, you never disappoint us. Thank you that when disturbing things happen to us or things just don't work out the way we wanted or planned, that we can have the hope and confidence that you have got it all under control and there's nothing that you can't handle. Thank you, God, that you do move in mysterious ways. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to worship and serve you while we're waiting for you to answer our prayers and to accomplish your will in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.